Psalm 89, verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You defiled his crown into the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all of his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this moment and this time will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in an article uh, by Dr. Gregory Jantz, he, he begins to discuss the issue of broken promises. And there is a side of the coin that you realize we've all, if by show of hands, would raise our hands saying, yes, we have not always kept our promises. There have been times with some of the best intentions where you and I were saying, we, we mean to do this, we desire to do this, but, but life happens and forgetfulness and other crises take over to where we can all say, we consistently at times will make promises and then at times break them. But his issue on, with broken promises is really on the flip side of the coin where he says, for how we understand and experience promises that have been made to us and then we break them, he, he begins to assess how we then view the very character of someone who breaks their promise. So we don't put it over to a corner, we begin to make judgments on their very character where we say, I, 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 I'm a, I think because you've broken your promise, I don't know that you really love me. Or feelings of abandonment can begin to, to creep in where one partner says to the other, he says, you're supposed to be a trustworthy person and yet you promised this important thing and now you've not stayed true to your word. Do, do you really love me? Let me drill in just a bit more here on this because have there been areas in your life where you, you look up and you begin to say, right or wrong, Lord, I feel like you've promised me this and yet I look at the circumstances of my life and I look at other things going on and are you going to be faithful to your promises and what you've said? And, and if that's you this morning, this psalm is for you. This morning, we're not going to be unpacking every single line of this. It's a rather long psalm, but we are aiming this morning 
for the very heart of it by asking, what is the main thrust that this is getting at? What is the main thing that this passage is, is drilling at? And, and, and it, it is unveiled to us by first assessing the character. The very thing that a broken promise makes you assess, the psalmist here, interestingly, begins to assess and look at the character of God. Um, backing up to the very beginning of Psalm 89, before we read, I would like to, to look at the beginning verses of this, but before you do that, you'll catch in your Bibles, it will say at the beginning here, a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. And you need to know that um, Ethan was one of the members of the Levites, and he would have been there in the temple who writing psalms and would have been tasked with leading the worship and singing and, and writing these beautiful psalms. And so you could picture him penning this down and writing this out. And he begins this great praise recounting how God has worked in the kingdom and how he's blessing the people with God's love. And this kick is kicked off here between uh, verses 1 and 4. See this flow with me. Where he says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. Uh, with my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all the generations. For I've said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And, and for a psalm that's really a lament, it's interesting. It opens up with this amazing praise. Um, it, it, it would be easy, I think, to gloss over all the ways that God here, in these opening lines, the way he's being pictured. It, it, the way you begin to read through verses 5 through 18 here, and you see there's a lot of amazing praise of God, and this is not flattery. You, you know flattery when you see it. It's, it's like uh, the scene from um, A Christmas Vacation where... Chevy Chase, where, where Clark, he's about to carve open the turkey, and as he carves the turkey, it's all dried up, and it just sort of explodes open, and then everybody's there eating it, and they're all smiling, going, mm, this is so good, as they're taking boats of gravy and trying to fix the, the turkey. It, it's insincere. But here, the psalmist, he, he is outright speaking truthfully about God. Uh, he is speaking here from the heart praising God for all of his goodness. To be one of the heavenly beings or spirits or angels would be incredible, but our God here is pictured as actually being far above all of them. Verse 6 says, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Um, who then is this that the wind and the sea obey him? The weather is at his control. Look at verse 11 where we read, the heavens are yours, the earth is also yours, the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. So much is pictured here. This God stands above all the earthly leaders who consistently fail to live up to what they say. No, here, God is great. And not just great, friends. He's good and great and faithful. He's also pictured as the very defense of his people. And so don't gloss over this. You read this description here of God and the praise is so high, finding a comparison can be rather difficult. And I kept trying to come up with someone in my own mind 
who fits the bill of this. And you know how us preacher types are. We're always looking for an illustration to kind of like, you know, paint the picture. And so I do what I do and I walk back and forth and I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking, somebody's anywhere, can, who can fit the bill for this? And I'm thinking about movies and I'm thinking about books and I'm thinking about songs. And, and, and I'm going through and it doesn't matter what I do. I was asking myself, can I find somebody this powerful, this protective, this rich, this creative, faithful, loving, and feared? And the problem was, no matter how hard I searched, I, nobody came to mind. Nobody fit the description. And I wonder if that's part of the point. That aside from Yahweh the Lord, nobody fits the bill. Because God is entirely and completely in a league of his own. This is what holiness is. To be utterly unlike anything else. Look at verse 18. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, the Holy One of Israel. His holiness means he is unlike any other thing that we could possibly describe. Christian, do you view God that way? Do you view God like this? Oh, sure, you say Jesus, he's truly man, but let us not forget he is truly God. He is truly holy and unlike anything that we have to compare. He cannot be relegated to just simply being a very nice, nice person. For the moment you do that, he's no longer your savior. There's one issue, though, that the psalmist comes because he's assessing the character of God. And as he goes through and he assesses the very character of God, he, he says, Though God is ruling so mightily over his people, if they don't actually have a representative who will go before them and lead the way and make the tough decisions where they're needed to be made and lead them through the battles, how will God truly end up actually blessing them? God has entered into a covenant relationship with his people in order to truly care for them and and, and love them. He also had to enter into a covenant relationship with their leader, who at the time had been David, King David. So after reading about the character of God, we now turn and we read a bit here about the covenant of God, specifically with King David. Look at verse 19 here, where it says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one, and you said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted the one chosen from the people. I have found David. My servant, with my holy oil, I've anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him and my arm also shall be strengthened with him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes from before him and I will strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted and I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father. My God, the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love, I will keep him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. We'll pause right there. The following verses after this, they paint the picture that God will discipline the kings to come from David's line, his lineage. And so we begin to think of Solomon and others. But to answer the question, how will God end up truly blessing them? He will bless his people because of his character 
by keeping his covenant with the king. That the king and the kingdom would be eternal. John C. Collins in the ESV study Bible uh, for the psalm he notes, he says, For the people to sing this actual psalm and to sing it faithfully is for them to choose as their own the way that God has chosen to administer his people. Accepting that the covenant with David defines the heir of David as the divinely appointed representative for God's people whose task is to lead them in faithfulness. Though the general thrust here is that God has established a covenant with his servant David. And for those of you who are not uh, fully familiar with the biblical plot line, a, a covenant is a strong promise that circles around a relationship. Uh, so that when we talk about marriage, we, we don't talk about marriage as being a, a contract in which, you know, you do your part and I'll do mine. And if one of us fails to do our part, then eh, we can rip this contract up. The covenant is a strong relationship that it, it, it's a, an, uh, bound up with an obligation. And the promise is strong that both parties are agreeing no matter what we're called to hold to our end. It's an oath-bound relationship. And this was very important for the people because it communicated the seriousness about God's hand being upon this Davidic king and the, the, the Davidic line. That he would never pull his hand back. That he would always shepherd his people through the king and through his offspring. And so serious that back up in verse 4 we read, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then we read about the anointing there, this, this being set apart. Anointing means being set apart for holy use. Now, if we were confined to the original pronouncement, being that this king's kingdom would go on forever, and that we'd have to say that at this moment, that God was not being faithful to what he says. And so we see the real issue here in verses 28 through 29, <clears throat> where he says, my steadfast love I will keep on him forever and my covenant will stand firm with him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Now, the whole reason that the psalmist has been bringing all of this to mind by saying, God, your character, God, your covenant is because he's trying to take all these things and then build up this tension by saying things are not right. For up to this end in section uh, at verse 37, our psalmist promised that God is like no other. That he's rejoiced over this covenant that he has with David and his offspring. And then, like a psalm, where if you, at the beginning of the song, if you were singing and playing your guitar and you were choosing all the chords and all the chords were major chords. And then at verse 38 following, all of a sudden now we go minor key. It's dark and it's sorrowful and it's raising this brutal tension. Here is the crux of the entire thing. If this psalm ended right here, prior to this, by saying, God, you're great. God, you hold your covenant. And we just ended right there. I would say, well, let me pray. We'll say hallelujah and pass the Christmas punch around because things are great. But everything turns. Look at verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown to the dust. You've breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in the ruins. And all who pass by plunder him and is become the scorn of his neighbors. So this psalm showing us the moral character of God and then revealing his covenant. And then the psalmist is 
pondering on these current circumstances that he's under, leaving us with this tension. Perhaps it's irreverent, but maybe it's like the psalmist is saying, God, you're like this, and you promised that, and here's what we're living in. What gives? There's a tension between the loving promises of God and the sorrowful reality of the people. The million-dollar question is this, and we have this million-dollar question still hanging over our heads. Will God be faithful? Will God hold to what he said? Will he follow through with all the things that he has told us he will do? The psalmist is asking that question when you cut into verse 46 where he says, How long? How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of man and what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And basically, that's the end of the psalm. God, you're amazing. You establish your leader with leaders of your people and somehow your kingdom and your people are in ruin. How long, God, are you going to go on in this sort of a contradiction? Well, some of us just need to get new watches. We need to get new clocks on our walls. Because our timelines are not God's timelines. God is never late. He is always just on time. Friends, He is able to bring in the exact relief, the exact fulfillment, the exact thing needed exactly when it needs to be there. He's always on time to accomplish all of his purposes. And so the psalmist cries out, how long, O Lord, how long, how long? And if you and I, if we could get the psalmist and whisper in his ear and say, how long? Eh, You're going to have to wait about 700 years. (laughs) You know, What then is the New Testament answer to this tension, to this issue? Friends, it's Advent. It's Christmas. The coming of Christ to redeem his people and be their king, not just for 33 years, but to truly fulfill the psalm and do so forever. The very first verse of the New Testament answers and relieves all the tension that this psalm leaves us hanging with. All the broken promises, all the feelings of abandonment, all the raising of how long, O Lord, and do you really love us, are answered when you flip to the very first verse. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, listen, the son of David. There it is, the son of Abraham. So all the generations down in verse 17 says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations and from David to the deportation in Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to the coming of Christ, 14 generations. And Matthew is trying to make the point. Don't you see the perfect timing of God to come in and bring us the Messiah right at the right moment? Church, God was never breaking his promise. He was intentionally fulfilling his promise and fulfilling them in an even greater way than was previously perceived to be the case. 
Listen to all the ways that the New Testament is hitting upon this answer. How long, O Lord, are you going to leave us in suspense and not really give us the Messiah, not really give us the king who will rule? And then you get to the book of Luke, and it just wants you to make this connection. So it says, Luke 1, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Or how about Luke one thirty two? He will be great and, is, and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Or one sixty nine, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Luke 2, 4. And Joseph went up from Galilee into the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of who? David. Which is, in, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Or Luke 2.11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. David. 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 Friends, almost as many Davids as we have in this church. And there's a lot of Davids. But the point is made. Through Christ come, through Advent, God has been faithful and will be faithful to all his promises. Not one of his promises will go unmet. We said earlier that there's a tension between the loving promises of God and the sorrowful reality of the people. And yet here with the coming king, we finally have an eternal, wise, powerful, good king who will never depart from David's throne. And so we see the fulfillment of Advent brings in a better reality than what the psalmist was even hoping for. In one sense, you and I as Christians, we can sing Psalm 89 in a very powerful way, knowing that God is amazing and has kept all of his promises to David. And he has through Christ displayed his steadfast love and faithfulness to bring about the needed salvation that this psalm speaks of. This psalm, I believe, is ultimately asking for Christmas Day to come, for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to rule forever, so that the people of faith would not be a joke in the eyes of the nations, and that they would flourish under the good King, that the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And the psalm is not asking God for a prosperity gospel, it's asking God for the reality of the salvation that would come through the suffering servant. It's asking God for something that is in line with his very heart to give us himself. And in Jesus, you and I, we have that. How long will you hide yourself in Christ? He has revealed himself to us. How long will you in your wrath burn against us? Well, in Christ, the wrath of God for his people is fully extinguished. And with Christ, there is deliverance from Sheol, from the grave, from death. Look at verse 47 here in 48. This is on the mind of the psalmist where he says, remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Well, Paul begins to pick up on this and say, look, the answer to, to this short life we live and the answer to the problem of death is, is Christ. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, 
which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished, here it is, death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news. Why? Because what happened to Jesus, friends, is what's going to happen to us. We will continue to live. And inasmuch as we trust in Christ here this morning, that eternal life is promised to us. We get to sing Johnny Cash's song and mean it where he, I think it's a, a cover song, but he says, there ain't no grave that can hold my body down. There ain't no grave that can hold my body down. When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm going to rise right up out of the ground because there ain't no grave that can hold my body down. This Christmas gift that God has sent to us was exactly what the psalmist was asking for. And friend, if you have yet to sing that song about ain't no grave can hold my body down, if you can't sing that with confidence this morning, if you, if you aren't resting this morning with full confidence that, die, that Jesus died for sinners and that you are a sinner, then I would love to speak with you after service here. I've shared this before, but WestJet had this interesting ad campaign that they were looking to do. And um, it's several years back, they decided that as people were coming to board a plane, that they were going to get this box. And uh, they had a TV screen in it in which Santa Claus is there. And as people are about to board on the plane, Somehow Santa knows each of their names, and so each person is coming through and, and getting on boarding the plane, and, and so he stops them and says, all right, well, what would you like for, for Christmas? And, you know, these parents are holding a child in their arms, and I don't know, the boy says, uh, a toy train. And so Santa says, oh, a toy train? Now, how about Thomas the train? And the boy, he smiles really big. Yeah, Thomas the train. And then... Santa Claus, he turns to the parents and he says, well, okay, how about you? And you kind of see them like, you know, rolling their eyes like, okay, whatever. Uh, sure, why not? How about a large flat screen TV? There you go. And, and people, one after the other, roll through and, and he's asking them. And some people say things like, hey, I, I need a, an iPad or I need an extra, you know, set of tickets for a flight home or looking for a snowboard. Um, this one guy rolls up and he says, the classic, he says, I just need some socks and underwear. <laughs> and so all these people, they get on the plane and they're boarding the plane and unbeknownst to them, WestJet has a team of people on the ground. So while the plane's in the air, people where the plane's about to land are running out and buying everything on their list. It's amazing. And so when the people get off the plane and they're going down to the luggage where the luggage comes out and they're they're looking to, to collect up their bags. Of course, you know, they're looking for suitcases to come down. The carousel starts moving and package after package after package comes down the chute. And each one with a huge name tag on it, written really clearly so everybody knows exactly whose gift belongs to who. And so you see all these scenes of people opening up the gift and they're pulling it out and it the little boy, it's a train, it's, it's Thomas, and he's so excited, another person got an iPad and snowboard, and, and you begin to see tears rolling down people's eyes, this mom, she just wanted a camera to take good pictures of her family, and she has this amazing new DSLR camera that she can take photos of her kids, and 
It's a beautiful scene, all these people, and even the parents who ask for the flat screen TV, it's not in the carousel, you know, where the garage doors open up and they shove it out and it's this huge, huge TV for them. And I remember thinking, what about the, what about the guy who asked for socks and underwear? Well, sure enough, he opens up a package, it's socks and underwear. And he could have asked for anything. He probably could have asked for a new car or a truck or something, and they would have put a big bow on it and driven it right there into where you get your luggage. And I wonder how many of us are living our lives in such a way that when we come to the Lord, we're just really at the end of the day, we're just asking for socks and underwear. And God has been busy preparing the most important gift to come down the chute that if you really knew what you need to know, it would be the thing that you're asking for far and above all other things that you would have coming down the chute to you with your name on it. The, the baby in the manger and the Messiah up on the cross and the salvation that is needed for you so that as the psalmist would cry out and say, how long and will I die and remain in the grave, but you would recognize with Christ's coming, he's been preparing for us the very thing we need most. God says you want a king who is gracious, who is powerful, who is protective, who's creative, faithful, strong, and feared, and rich, and amazing. Well, Micah 2 says, look, look then, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, For you shall come forth from me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And so look to the star that's going to come over Bethlehem. For in Jesus, we have the very character of God on full display. The new covenant of God that is far better than all the previous. And in him, we have been delivered from the power of death and Sheol. In Christ, friends, we've been given the promises of an even better fulfillment than we could have ever, ever asked for or imagined. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we are asking in faith that you would give us the one gift in Christ that supersedes all others, the gift of salvation. Ultimately, the gift of you, our King, And Lord, our hearts are too easily amazed by small trivialties. And we just pray that you would give us um, eyes uh, of faith to see you come. And a heart that trusts that all the promises that you've made will never be broken, but will be kept. So that even as we have you now and we will have you in the future, Lord, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.